You're listening to the Four Oaks Midtown Podcast. I'm Brian. We're here with Pastor Lance, Lance Olin. Hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. And uh, we're going to uh, be talking about an issue that uh, probably you could say it's a delicate issue, but one that yeah. many people have questions about, and rightly so. I think there's a lot of questions about application and you know how certain things uh, play out. And uh, so we're going to just have a little conversation a little q a with lance about this yeah no you haven't said the topic yet are we all are we withholding you want me to drop the it? topic is homeschooling yes i'm kidding no it's actually, actually less controversial than that actually up until last year i would have had no opinion because i hadn't been involved i had actually that's a lie i had a lot of opinions but we did some homeschooling last year there you go I can there say you go i'm happy to be out the actual subject we're gonna be talking about uh is the subject of since we're t- we're going through first timothy yep in church, talking about women's roles in the church. Yeah, that's and, a good way uh, to say it. And what the Bible prohibits, why it does that, what does it mean for women who uh, want to exercise the gifts that they have? How do we think through that? What, what's what's a proper application? Is there leeway in application? All these things are associated with that topic. Yeah, and I, maybe I would add to, so when you said uh, the subject of women's roles in the church, I mean, I also think, of course, First Timothy has a ton to say about men's roles in the church as right. well. It's it's men and women. Um, so in other words, he has a lot to say about unruly men who are angry and quarreling in church and who aren't praying. Instead, they're fighting with each other and doing things like that. But specifically, now at the end of First Timothy chapter 2, there are, like you said, direct prohibitions um, that seem to be only based in gender. They're, they're only women. Uh, don't do this. Uh, seems like then on the flip side, of course, that means men, you can or yes, do this. So uh, I thought maybe I'll give a little bit of context or why we do a podcast. We don't do this every week. You know, if you're just tuning in, uh, we don't we don't do a special conversation with every single sermon we have. Um, but it seems to me that issues like this or the conversations that I've been in, um, I think a majority of the kinds of questions that people have concerning the role of men and women in the church um, and in marriages or in wider society for that for that matter, from a Christian perspective, they normally have to do with degrees and nuances and application. Like, give me, let me, let me give you this one specific instance, and what about that? And I simply can't handle that all in a sermon. And uh, I think there are good things to talk about there, but they're, for one, they don't show up at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So I don't think on a Sunday morning they're going to find much room as I discuss that text. And then, you know, second, I just wouldn't have time, but I want us to have a conversation. So I know that these are things people are thinking about. Maybe we could be helpful. I think that's the hope. I'm going to read out the verses in question. Just so we have a, Great. if you're listening, we can, you know, what's this controversy about? Or is it even a controversy? What, what are we talking about? And the relevant verses are 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And I'm just going to read them out. Uh, I desire that, I desire then that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So I think uh, when we talk about women's role in the church, that, that's like ground zero, that prohibition, that limitation. And just the idea of limitation, not a really popular idea in our culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you said at the outset, um, why is this a delicate issue? And I think it's worth saying that men and women alike, what it is to be human in a lot of ways, especially in this fallen world and the end of First Timothy chapter 2, Paul mentions that. He goes all the way to Adam and Eve. Is We should just say out loud that none of us like limitations. There's something inside of us that it's hard to hear you can't or do not or stop. And especially in this case, it seems to be directed at and only only women and not men. And so just that concept alone of limitations requires some conversation. It's rare that we just 
take a take a limitation or take some sort of factor that that removes a possibility from us. I think we live in a world that you know all of us believe and want to believe that all possibilities, all paths are open to us, and anything that's closed, we better have a really good explanation, or it just feels existentially difficult. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one one issue here, the reason we want to do, be careful with it and care for people is that limitations are, are difficult. They're hard. And we have such a, I think, a modern society where everything is about competency, which is not bad. Yeah, it's no, sort of like if you limit somebody, mm-hmm. then you're denying something about their worth or their, you know, it, it feels like, um, and I think it, it speaks to how we've corporatized the church where a woman can't preach or teach or she can't be, you know, hold authority over men, she can't be a, a pastor, is viewed in terms of like a glass ceiling because we sure. view the church now like like a like a corporation rather than a family. And so we're, it's almost a worldly type of thinking to, to view limitation in the same way that it'd be like, well, you don't want me to be a CEO or you don't want me to be the lead doctor and whatever. Yeah. No, I, I agree totally. I mean, I love meritocracy too. I think that's a that's an ideal that we've fostered in the Western world for right. a long time. And it can feel like what God is saying is women should not because they're always worse at it or something like that. Right. And I, I actually think that, that is a, that's something we can just say right at the outset. Um, God doesn't say that. Um, and we need to be okay with the reality here that God has put a limiter on that doesn't have to do with competence. In fact, I mean, I could I could say for sure, not only are there numerous topics in the world, but there are probably portions of scripture and um, whole subjects. There are professors of the Old Testament where there are plenty of unbelievably bright and competent women who would teach a lot of these things better than us. I mean, so, but that's not why he, he put that there. So, yeah, we're hitting against one, it's a limitation, which that's not easy. Two, it goes against the grain of a meritocracy that we're in, which right. just says whoever is best should win, right? And that doesn't seem to be God's calculus. Well, it seems like culture has sort of piled three issues on top of one another. Uh, you know, there, there's our, our modern culture talking about gender confusion there's, or gender neutrality that, that sure. men and yeah. women are interchangeable. Uh, some of the more radical forms of feminism or what feminism in a classic sense that was fighting for equality, for voting and jobs has now morphed into a more, I think, destructive, you know, elements of anti-motherhood, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of form of feminism that seeks to sort of flip everything or, 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 or uh, push women almost in a sense of they don't, you don't need men or you don't need something, you know, there's some, some more radical forms of that as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on all the waves of feminism. Right. I think you could probably find elements of that uh, from the very beginning. It's just that those weren't the dominant voices. And right. now, yeah, absolutely. The dominant voices in feminism have, have pushed to the point where to even point out the differences between men and women is off limits entirely. Right. And I think, yeah, what, what you're finding is in a lot of these, it, it, where at first it might have been a very good, and I think I could just say that too, there are elements of a feminist movement or the conversations we've had around these things where, where there was misuse or abuse or, uh, or misunderstanding in a lot of ways, this should have been corrected. That's, that's okay. But I think that what's being shown in a lot of the conversations for sure is that what maybe started as a, Hey, let's, let's get better conditions of equality here was really combative and, and antagonistic almost toward men from the beginning where the kind of passion that it took to move that conversation forward, you know, maybe was also motivated by maybe a little bit of resentment um, where, you know, I, I don't know, I, the way that I've read or often, like you said, a rejection of even the idea of motherhood and not only the idea of motherhood, but maybe so a little bit resentful. That it's they, an oppressive category. Yeah, yeah. Just the fact that almost a, a shaking a fist at the world, and, they, and a lot of them maybe wouldn't say they're creator, but shaking a fist at the world, even that men don't, it's unfair even that women have to be saddled with this burden that hinders their competitive edge, you know, or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see that even with the the quote unquote pro-choice movement. Yeah. With what's the choice? What's the choice to have the same freedom 
to, in a sense, walk away from a child that a man does. Yeah, when both those things should be condemned. Right, right, right. So. right. But but it's almost like it's it's a way to equalize. Yeah, what, yeah. A, a Level of playing field, hundred percent. So you mentioned the, you mentioned there was three issues: the one being gender neutral stuff, which if you know the old adage of like, if everything is that thing, then nothing is that thing. I mean, that's kind of where we've reached it with with genders at this point. And then feminism, of course, all the different waves of it would have been categories that throw this conversation specifically from the Bible into confusion. But then I'd also say it's not just the world out there, but there has been ongoing for probably a hundred years questions, um, biblical criticism, like, uh, you know, critic criticism in a biblical sense really means the deconstruction of the Bible. Right. Uh, there have been movements on top of movements that have sought to, to discount the apostle Paul, for instance, red letter Christians, where a lot of these issues are seen as not to be trusted. They, they're seen as uh, anti-Jesus or, you know, not, not authoritative. Um, in Movements around inerrancy, uh, the ability that we would have to reject portions of the scripture. These have been conversations that have been going on within the church, within theological circles for a hundred years. So by the time someone comes to read these, whether or not you wanted to pay attention, it's almost like they've become part of, they're a part of our world where we've been given tools to, to think of ways to, or questions to ask that would discount the teaching. So, well, but did that really mean that? Does that word mean that? Isn't that the only place that it's used? Isn't this culturally ingrained? You know, wasn't that just Paul? You know, those kind of things, I think we... And Paul is, you know, a lot of times when people try to but when people talk about Paul, they actually, depending on, on, on what area you're coming from. So some people who want to be like, look, we're, we miss how prominent women are. They mentioned Paul. Paul talking about, you know, uh, uh, writing to Chloe sure. in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, someone who seems to have a lot of sway in, this, in the Church of Corinth. Talking about Phoebe, talking about Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila, yeah. and, and talking about, you know, all these different women that he's co-laborers with. So he seems to have a very high view of women. Yeah. He views them as equals in in, in his in calling and in, in, in doing ministry with them. And he's also the guy that writes this prohibition. Yeah. You so know what's it, great about Timothy as well is he loves Timothy, but you can almost tell that some of his love is derivative of his love for his grandmother. He's yeah. like, oh, the spirit that was in your grandmother, right, right, Lois. Right. Like, so yeah, there's not a disrespect, but I just mean the entire field of biblical criticism has worked to undermine what I would just say, we we believe that maybe there is a way out, especially if something's difficult as a passage. So those are all things that would make this a little bit delicate. You know, and I'll also say, I just wanna make sure I put some some statements up here at, at, the, at the outset. The reality is as well, that though the word of God, you know, it's almost like the Paul, like Paul has to say, no, the law is good. It's not the, it's not the law that's bad. Right. Or it's not God that's, that's bad, it's sinners. The, though the law is good and we believe these things are for our good that are taught here, we should just, we should say there has been abuse. There's been misuse of these concepts. It's been handled uh, terribly in some circumstances. There are all of the, you know, you could, some of them are cliche, some are stereotypes, some are just sad, some are tragic, but all of the different wonky ways you could imagine the relationship between men and women, especially if you're out of church cultures, that's real. Um, misuse, abuse, misunderstanding legalism, you know, so like a hypersensitivity to these kind of things. So I should just say at the outset, we start teaching through first Timothy and I'm sure that everybody thinks to themselves, wait, you know, what's happening here? Because I've seen this go wrong or I felt it go wrong or I know that it is. So I just want to say that that's, that's real as well. It's not just that, you know, someone doesn't want to obey or something like that. Well, let, let's zero in on the specific command that I think has the most Sure. controversy attached to it and that is paul's prohibition i don't permit a woman to teach or hold authority over a man um how how culturally bounded is this command and why is this partic in particular one that seems to get so much attention yeah no that's a great question so one of the things that people would say is and i i think that they're right is that there was a particular situation going on in ephesus in other words, a kind of dysfunction, a kind of difficulty that was leading to disorder and chaos in their worship. Right. 
And so people wonder, well, would Paul have said that anywhere else? He probably doesn't mean that anywhere else. He just means it for them, right? Or he just, he can't imagine a scenario, you know, where this would be universally accepted rather than just for Ephesus. So that is the question. I think a lot of people would say that, uh, that it's only for there. I mean, I, I do have a couple of things that I think we can say clearly about it. One, it's not just Ephesus, right? So a lot of the things that would want to be put in the category of culturally bound only to that unique situation, it seems to have at least been the unique situation of numerous of the churches that Paul planted because he writes similar instructions, uh, for instance, uh, in Corinthians, in Corinthians, right? Um, he, he encounters many of the same spirits or the same problems or the same kind of concerns and puts very similar prohibitions. Um, so in other words, he, he says at one point that it's, uh, it's un, undignified sort of almost to the point of ungodly, uh, for, a, for a woman to speak in a public gathering like that. Right. And so that's in, in Corinthians. So I guess I would just point out and say, well, it seems like it was more widespread than just Ephesus. Although, if there were issues, yes, he spoke to it. But the other thing that I would say is, is that culture very different than ours? In other words, he's addressing, and remember this, he's addressing men and women and the rightful order. So maybe what he's saying is, man, it sure seems like, you know, men are fighting one another over all kinds of dissensions. They're not praying properly and respectfully enough for the, the world around them. They're just kind of angry and bitter and quarreling. And, and so that needs to be stopped. And, you know, I don't think we'd ever say like, oh, you know, old Ephesus, that's just them. Or there was conflict between how men and women should relate to one another and whose opinions or ideas should take precedence and then how they decide that. There may have been resentment over it. There was disordered and chaotic teaching or worship. And I, I mean, I just think through like some of the commands about gossiping or about maybe that there was some there was some inability of those churches in the early church to handle their sexuality properly. So, and I would just say to someone who believes that these are culturally bound, I would just say, well, how many of the things that I just described, if you want to say it's just Corinth or Ephesus, is that not our problem as well? The interesting thing is if, if Paul was dealing with just, you know, some women in the church who were teaching falsely, why would he just stop all women from teaching? Why wouldn't he just call them out by yeah. name like he does for the men? So it seems to be that it's a, a cultural situation may have prompted him to say this, but he's basically saying, okay, here's a cultural situation. And this is why we have this universal rule sure. about the prohibition. And, uh, and, and, he, and he, you know, he, he, he talks about it very clearly and he brings it back to Adam and Eve, which is before the fall in creation. You know, he, he doesn't ground this prohibition on something happening in culture. He grounds it in, this is something to do with the creative order. Yeah, if his, if his desire was to make it small, minor, one-off, right. and bounded. He wouldn't bring in Genesis Oh yeah, he two, ruined it. You know? He ruined yeah. it completely. He went way the wrong direction. You know, other, one other thing about this, and I would just note, um, you could make the same argument about things being culturally bound for anything that Paul writes at all. Right, right. In fact, I, I think you could say, well, the Bible, the last, the last book, of, the last letter of the Bible was written, you know, 1900 years ago. Right. How, how could that speak to culture now? And so I would just be careful with that. Um, Paul makes a very strong command right before the verses that we just read, or in them, verse 8, that men should lift holy hands, praying more often, and stop being so angry and fighting. Well, we would never say that's just culturally bound. Right, it just right. it just means in in other words, where we see the same temptations or the same thoughts in us, I don't know, I think scripture speaks to them universally. And if not, boy, we're gonna have hard we're gonna have a hard time applying the Bible. Well, think about even too how this is paired. I mean, you have a desire for men and a desire for women, and they're supposed to work together. And then it's interesting when he talks about Adam and Eve because Adam received the command from God, and then Eve would have received it secondhand from Adam, and Adam was supposed to be the one who was taking care and, and protecting her from Satan. He was, supposed to, he was keeping the garden. He was a guardian of the garden. He was supposed to keep the snakes out. He failed in that leadership responsibility, and Eve suffered for that. Now, Eve is responsible for her sin, but there's a responsibility to Adam, too, that he allowed that to happen, that he wasn't being vigilant. He wasn't caring for his wife in the right way. And in many ways... First Timothy 2, 
I think part of it is Paul's like, what's going on with the women teaching and preaching and holding authority over men? But what's going on with the men? Where are the why, men? Why, why, sure. why, you know, where are the men? Are they doing something? Why are they being passive? Why are they not being engaged in what I'm calling? And, and not just the men, but the, but the pastors, but the people who are, are called to do this. Why are they not being engaged with this? Mm-hmm. Why is there this void that people are filling? Yeah, I don't. I don't pretend to know the fullness of all of what Paul was thinking when he went to creation, because I believe that that is such a mysterious thing. I mean, we're right. getting down to the very, the image of God being implanted. But the fact that he did female. go to creation is the, is the, is the yes. most important point. Exactly. And that he believes that this is so not culturally bound that we can learn lessons all the way back to the garden that are applicable then. And I believe in, in the fallen world, they're still applicable you know, now. Um, I will say, just as a point here, I, I've thought often about how to handle this, that he says, you know, it was it was Eve who was deceived, right. not Adam. And um, I think that there there's a couple of places where that seems to be, you know, evident in scripture, this, this whole idea of deception and how did that work? Um, I'm not going to pretend to know it either there exactly all that Paul's saying. I've heard this misused often to make it sound as though, you know, well, you know, uh, one gender or the other is just inherently gullible right, or right. something, which I do I would never want to say that, nor do I think that scripture teaches that authoritatively. But here, at least, through Adam's neglect, or perhaps from Eve's misunderstanding or her not remembering, her sin here comes through deceptive teaching. So at least in Eve's case, she was susceptible to the false teaching of Satan. Right. And you know, it doesn't mean that Adam was righteous in it. I mean, if anything, if you say here, uh, Eve was deceived and Adam was not. So what you're saying is that Adam knew better and he still sinned, right? So he's, Right. He's, well, it's, in so some ways, it's even worse. It's right? not. It's way worse. Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably way worse. But the point is exactly what you said. He grounds it all the way back to the garden. In other words, he tries to get as far away from the culture of Ephesus as he can. He goes all the way back. He says, remember God's plan. There's a complementary pairing between men and women. They each have roles. And here in this case, look how it failed. Look what happened here. Adam wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, though he was the one that had received the word of God. Eve believed a different word of God. It got them into sin and all kinds of problems. And he seems to think that that carries forward all the way to what was happening in Ephesus, and I believe all the way to our day. And so, there's something so honestly blunt about it. You know, like you're talking when he goes back to Genesis and, and the command is so blunt, where I wonder if part of this is, you know, we can go back and forth over and over about what is this is the culture but how much of it is we just don't want to believe it we just we just don't want it yeah i agree totally that's what i mean about limitations earlier right. um and we should probably say that as we teach through scripture there are going to be things there are some places of the bible that will rub us the wrong way more than others and i think that we need to pay careful attention to those spots we're not we're not begging or looking. The thing is, is we're, we're always tempted to ask questions about being culturally bound in the areas that we don't like. Right. right? Exactly. So, so we're... Nobody's wondering if giving to the poor is culturally bound. Yeah, exactly. And it, of course, it, it isn't, right? Or right. Whatever, your, whatever your thing is. The, right. The person who says, I, I run orphanages because it's pure and undefiled the right. religion. We don't say, well, like, that was only pure and undefiled for them. Right, right, you know, that's right, not, right, right. James is writing. He's in Jerusalem. You know, that's a... So I think we should pay careful attention. There will be things, like you said, we, it's more plain than we're willing to admit, but it's it's because it's complex in us. It's not complex on the paper. It's complex in us. And the reality is, is we live in a fallen world where we can't imagine these things going well sometimes. And we've seen so much dysfunction with men and women and abuse and uh, and over like lording it over and power grabs and that kind of stuff that we don't. We just don't know how to say this should be received, but we need to. The goal in what I would call complementarianism, right, is what we call, we have complementary genders who are who are both the image of God, but distinct for their roles and purposes in the world. I think the goal of it should be to receive all of the teaching of scripture and to say to people as loudly as we can, because God is good, this is this is our best. There's no more joyful path ahead of us. In other words, I don't want to be the kind of person who says, yeah, yeah, I'm really sorry. The Bible does say this. I just, I wish, I wish it didn't. 
you know, just like right. you're kind of, you're winking as right, you teach right. it. You wish you could erase it, but you can't. Yeah, technically. Like we, we all know God's a little weird here, you right, know, if, right. uh, as though, and I think that that's offensive. I think it's offensive to the God of the universe to say that he, did he, did he just miss it? You know, right. is, is God unaware of all the advancements that we've now obtained when it comes to male and female relationships? Um, to me, that is a kind of thing that is, you're just on dangerous ground to do that. And I wouldn't want to ever do that. So what I'm trying to do here is to be sensitive and understand that we'll have to work out our obedience sometimes in a little bit more of a difficult way. And there are a lot of nuanced application questions here. It's not that, but I don't want to ever get the tone as I'm like apologizing for my crazy uncle, right. God, who, who said some, some weird stuff. Well, let's, so let, let's think about, okay, maybe, maybe people listening are like, all right, I'm on board. I believe that, that I don't have a crazy uncle, by the way, either. That, I just, that's just what people say. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so let's say somebody's like, I'm on board. I don't think that, uh, I, I think that Paul clearly says that elders and pastors should be men. Um, and that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think this is a cultural thing. Uh, but what, uh, what are the limitations on this verse? Or, uh, can women not teach or hold authority over men in life in general? Uh, or, yeah, good question. Just in churchy things or the church itself? Like what, 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 where does this, uh, what is this prohibit, pro prohibition? What are the, the, the limits of it? Sure. Well, I think that we should, uh, we should be careful. And this is why definitions are wonderful. We try to make careful definitions so that we can have some confidence when we draw lines. So I think the first thing to say is scripture speaks to these issues in different ways within the church. And by church, I mean both the organization and the organism, but like within the church, within the home. And for the most part, first Timothy chapter two, it is not address, doesn't address the home as much. This is specifically for church, but then I'd also put another comma there. And I would say that we need to be careful about what, if any limitations are there just in wider Christian community, because I think that gets confusing for people. So can I, uh, can I narrow it down? I think that makes sense, right? Yeah. Let me narrow it down and just say, Mostly what I'm talking about and what I'm going to teach about as I preach about this is First Timothy chapter 2, I believe, speaks specifically to ordered worship. And I would say even more than that, ordered, gathered worship. So for us, um, I mean, these are things where you kind of have to back up. Sometimes being fuzzy upstream leads to chaos and fuzziness downstream. So let me back up and go upstream. One of the things that we try to be really clear about is that we believe that though, of course, you have as much of Jesus as anywhere else when you're driving in your car and you should be a Christian when you're in your workspace and uh, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is there by his spirit. And I mean, all the commands are applicable. Of course, uh, we, we don't say that anything's necessarily diminished when you're a scattered Christian, but I do think we emphasize the gathered church because we see it in scripture. God loves to assemble his people. He calls them to assemble all the time. And then he gives them very, he gives his people very specific tasks to do when they're gathered. So I would say, though you're not diminished, of course, as a Christian outside of the gathering, when you're scattered, there's a reason that you're not to neglect the gathering together. That, that's to your peril. The It is the church gathered, the church united that has has the both the uh, the prerogative and the joy and the privilege to take part of the sacraments. Like we we take these things together. So I do make a distinction, and I would say we try to as much as we can place an emphasis on the beauty of the gathered church. So for us, what we call that, like as Zach and I talk through, and you know Brian, you and I have talked about this a lot too. I basically think from call to worship to benediction, we're going to be more careful about what we're doing and try to pay attention to what does God tell us to do when we're gathered. So in that context, I think that we would be the most protective and maybe what people would say the most conservative, the most intentional about these verses from call to worship to benediction, because it seems like that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Hey, when you guys are all together, here's how you should behave in the household of God. And, you know, even within that, there's going to be some conversations to be had, but I am not talking about every husband and wife, every single person, every Christian conversation that happens. So the things that I would say were prohibited, uh, we believe that in our context, the preaching and teaching of the word of God, and in, in our case, we would include the way that Zach leads through liturgy. We believe that inviting and 
really commanding people to confess their sins. And, and by command, I mean through the, the power of Scripture's command to, uh, to confront our sin, to repent for days of refreshing. I mean, I think that the way that Zach would lead that oftentimes, you know, there, there should be an authority behind that. Of course, the, the actual act of teaching through Scripture, we believe, well, I mean, where else would this be applicable if not here? And, and I think the thing is, is, you know, some of this, whether it's explicit or not, just ask someone, did that seem like the authoritative teaching of the church? And I think you can right. get pretty close because it sometimes is implicit and we don't stand up every time and I don't announce to people, hey, just so you know, now is the time that I'm entering into authoritative teaching. But clearly the preaching of that would be. Um, we've also added in things like the um, administration of the Lord's table. I mean, we believe that, that that is a powerful invitation to to partake and to come to believe your sins are forgiven. You know, the the assurance of salvation in Christ. You know, those kind of things we believe would fall under this prohibition. So, I guess the way that I would say it is: let's start with what we have made clear, and that is in the gathering from call to worship to benediction. We try to be very careful to listen to God's design for this order of worship. So they're so, basically. We're, we're, we're just talking about the gathered church and that in the gathered church, there are certain slots where the authority of the elders is most presently felt, which would be the Lord's table, the liturgical elements of confession, absolution, all these things, and the preaching of the word. And those are such prime slots that you want to really make sure that we're focusing on Paul saying, we need to have the, the proper gender roles for these. Yes. And I believe it's both title and function. Which is important because I think some people would say, oh, well, then we just can't call certain people pastors. But what he addresses is what, what's the action, done, the, right, uh, the action right. of the thing. So I don't believe we, you know, we get around it if, if the person who preaches every single week, we just never give them a title or something. However, the title is closely aligned with it because sure. it, it does say definitively all through the New Testament that the task of the elders is the teaching and doctrine of the church. Some of them engaged in preaching full-time um, to the point of you know, their livelihood is this, as well as governing. So it does seem like in Paul's mind, he's lining up these functions. One of the reasons he says they shouldn't be done is because they are the function of the people with the title, aka the elders, and the elders should be the ones doing this, and they're, they're men. So some of it is function, and then, of course, on the other side of it is, you know, we'll have to have a you know, discussion as well about, well, who do we give the title to? Well, how, how would you, because we have men who lead worship who aren't pastors who do the liturgy. Yeah. Um, Good question. So, and, and oftentimes people will say things like, a woman can do anything a non-ordained man can do. What are your thoughts on that phrase? Yeah. Well, the thing I don't like about that phrase necessarily is uh, I think you have to ask a few more questions. In other words, well, what does ordination mean in this church? Right. And I think the power of that phrase comes from a context where ordination is a big, big deal. And there are places where, I mean, I think you and I have both had a lot of experience with even Presbyterian churches, for instance, that only an ordained person can serve Right, the they Lord's wouldn't supper. have a lay guy doing yeah. those things. You know what? Right when I was finishing seminary, I had a, a couple of interviews with, with a church that I really liked. And I felt like things were going really, really well. But what I, what I found out is that they were going to be starting... You know, sort of a, a new thing. It was like a, a worship service kind of thing at night, and they really wanted this person to be able to lead it. And when they realized that I wasn't yet ordained in their denomination, it, it threw them for a loop. And I remember thinking, like, well, what's what's the problem? You know, I'd been a, serving yeah. as a pastor for a long time at that point, and it's because that unless they wanna, I they was ordained, you. yeah, they want to know you're official. Well, they wouldn't let me near the Lord's Supper. <laughs> it's oh, like the whole thing right, was a right, communion right. service, right, right? And they wouldn't have let me serve it. So I don't think that that phrase, I think the phrase has meaning. I think it's great, but it usually only applies in a context where ordination is already extremely, extremely limiting in some sense. Um, and then the other thing is, here's the deal. I, I think it would be simpler in some ways. I could imagine that to say a phrase like that, but I think it oversimplifies and it's almost, it's almost too neat and too useful because the reality here is, if Paul wanted to make it about ordination, he could have said that. He could have said, I do not permit a non-elder to teach or exercise authority over the church. Right. But he doesn't. He, he you know, and right. For, he prohibits women. He does. Right. And, right. and he prohibits the function. 
Right. So the two things that I say I would say are not handled well enough in a pithy little phrase like that is the idea that this is this is more about gender and it's a prohibition strictly related to gender. And again, I think even saying that out loud, that's that's hard to deal with. I think we've hit the crux of it there. He prohibits based on gender and gender alone, and he prohibits the functions, not the title, right? right. So I guess I would just say I don't hate that phrase. I think it's really helpful in a lot of ways. I just don't think that it always fits, and I don't think that it goes far enough to really get at what scripture saying. And it's so important. Like, what does the actual text say? We have to deal with it. You know, it, is yeah. it, it like you were saying, Paul didn't say, uh, I don't permit non-ordained people. Exactly. He, he does say women. Yeah. And he doesn't say women to hold an office. He says, performing these two things, teach and have authority. Now there's controversy over whether it's not controversy, the discussion over whether it's, she can't have teaching authority as, so meaning she could teach, but in a non-authoritative way, but it seems like it's more likely there are two different things, teaching and authority. But is there ever a, a possibility for a woman to teach under the authority of the elders? Uh, if, if the elders said, hey, she's not a pastor, she's just doing this and we're okay with it, but it's under mm -hmm. our authority. Yeah, so two things here real quick. I mean, one, yeah, when you ask a question like that, is there a possibility? I think I would always say yes, because I don't believe that we can imagine all the scenarios, nor do we want to be... I don't think that we want to be so legalistic about these things that just we we would just flat out be like, no, I can never imagine any scenario, or any kind of teaching would ever take place, or that the elders could not function in a way that it was obvious to the church that you know this was this was being done like this for a reason or something. So I would say, well, sure, there could be a possibility. The other thing that I would say about things like this, though, um, Whenever we get down to application and nuance, I think what we're getting at is what I would call the subjective spirit-led nature of our world. So I think the thing that's tough and when you push back, the, the number of scenarios that I could think about, the number of ways to implement this, what it really comes down to is whether or not we're comfortable with the idea that God gives principles and in many ways direct commands but they still need to be embodied. They still need to be lived out in real time. And sometimes there are things that are a little subjective. So like you said, oh, what what is teaching exactly? What is preaching exactly? How do you know when there's authority being exercised exactly versus just influence or leadership? And we're having to define those things in real time. So I think that we should be open to and understand. I mean, sometimes maybe we might even disagree about that. I mean, and, and I don't, I would never want to, you know, throw under the bus people who would disagree about these kind of things. So when right. you ask a question like that, I think what you're saying is, are the scenarios where, where a woman in, who is, who is gifted and um, led by the spirit of God and, and so competent in these scriptures and these kinds of things where they could teach, but not like this is prohibiting in a different way. And by the time you get to the end of that sentence, what I just said my guess is you're probably going to have a bunch of different subjective opinions about whether or not it is teaching or preaching. And I think that that's okay. I mean, I, I, I think that's why God gives leadership in the church. There's a plurality of elders that do need to make these calls. We're not going to go there right now, but I, I think the Bible's full of commands and principles that seem very direct, but they still have to be undergirded by real life, and I would even call them subjective words. So modesty is in this text that you read as well. I mean... Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if Paul just defined what modesty is? Now, in his in the verses there, he of course he does indicate some of the things, right? There's some of them, but he doesn't go all the, he doesn't go all the way. It's a little bit of a subjective term. Um, well, I just want to press a little. So, are you know if if we say that Paul is prohibiting yeah. women from teaching and holding authority over men, um, you don't want me to wiggle out of the question. Yeah. You want me to like what, actually say. <laughs> would Four Oaks elders ever permit a woman to teach or hold authority over men? Well, I would say no, because yeah. we wouldn't want to violate the verse. But is there a form of teaching that women could do that would not violate that verse? Absolutely. Oh, there's what tons that, of places they what could What would te that be? Teach. I would say it's harder for me to imagine in between call to worship to benediction, Sunday morning, this is the gathered church. It would be hard for me to imagine a scenario where it wasn't evidently either explicitly or implicitly in violation of this command. Right. I mean, it seems... That you it really would, couldn't 
Go ahead. I think you were about to hit it. You were just saying that you really couldn't have a non-authoritative statement. Yeah, it's, it's really sort of like, hard. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you, you'd have to. And even if you tried to make it seem like it was an authoritative, that would almost kind of be like, we think you protest too much. You know, like yes. you, you're, you're you're trying way too hard to make this not authoritative, which means it probably is yeah. in an authoritative position. And then I would just ask, well, why does it have to take place in that context? Right. Now, outside of that context, right. I mean, one of the reasons that I said before, we can make careful definitions so that when we draw lines, we can have confidence. Outside of that Sunday gathering thing, I would have tons more flexibility um, to to say there are contexts or there's ways or there's places that teaching could take place that would not seem or not be as authoritative. And then I would say, absolutely. And that's even in a in a mixed context that that's I'm envisioning there and everybody's invited. This is mixed gender. The whole, the whole thing. I would say, Oh, I not only can I imagine it, but I think that we have done that. Right. But it's outside of the gathered church that you were saying. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's almost like we've got different circles, like the, the tightest circles around Sunday morning. Absolutely. And then as you move away from Sunday morning, it's, it's more and more flexible as to sure. how this works. Yes, I think so. Because I believe that if someone was connected with our church and they said, where, where does authoritative teaching place take place? I mean, what we offer people on Sunday mornings is, is an, is the most prominent form of right. doctrinal teaching that we give period. Right. So then outside of that, yeah, there, there would be other contexts. Absolutely. And that's envisioning like the whole church kind of thing, you know, let alone the, the greater question, which I think is such a good one, which is, well, what what does the spirit of God lead women to do in a church? And I understand that too. It can sound like, well, here's these prohibitions. Well, what can we do? I actually think some of that question, I feel shame on my in myself sometimes when I hear that. Or not shame, I shouldn't say shame. I I've, There's a little bit of pain there. And because we've talked a lot about culture, oh, the culture out there, and you could say feminism or whatever. But I think one of the, the problems here is that we maybe have put too much of an emphasis or we need to be chastened by the question because if we present a church culture that makes it seem like the only important things that happen are the big fancy public ones that are under the lights, right? we've failed. And I would want to say, you know, I mean, this is a church history kind of thing, but one of the things that was recovered in the Reformation was the word of God taking center place in worship services. From Luther on, on down, that was a big transformation. And... I, of course, love this. I think it's right. I think it's good. However, we should be careful to realize that we might be communicating the wrong thing where everyone else doesn't have anything to do unless you're one of the people that gets the microphone in a big public way. And that, of course, is entirely wrong. The body of Christ, we all we all need one another. And we should be looking for, and I think that that question is a wonderful question that has to be answered. It can't just be left hanging out there. Uh, we've probably made too much of a celebrity over powerful, charismatic, public teaching and preaching as though that's the thing that everyone should aspire to. When the reality is, is quiet, behind the scenes, don't let right hand, left, know what left hand is, left hand know what right hand is doing. Uh, pray in the closet. Um, true and undefiled, pure and undefiled religion are these things that they're not flashy in any way. They're not big and public and open. And so if there's something that we're doing over the course of time that highlights only that public teaching and only the authoritative leading, if we communicate over the course of time that those are the only important things that happen in the body life of a church, we failed miserably. So these are great questions. And I would just say, it seems like men and women both are are not only open and encouraged to, but should be functioning in a million other ways. Well, there's so many, I mean, in Titus, Paul tells uh, Titus, "I want you to, I want the elders to teach the older women so that they can teach the younger women." So that means that, you know, if if, if you if there's a there's a call for older women to teach younger women and children too, that's a huge population. And I think that there are things that women can only teach other women because they have a certain uh, shared experience, a certain understanding, a certain approachability, in which teaching from a woman to another woman is going to be way more effective, or even from women to children will be may, way more effective than a man, which is, I think, why Paul goes, look, there, there's, you know, I, I think we shouldn't view this in terms of one prohibition, but viewing it in terms of there is a 
a massive need for what Titus is saying to happen, for older women to be major influences in younger women's lives, to teach them the word of God, to teach them scripture. You know, and if you think about it too, like I think about the work that Cassie Hedema does, basically training up the next generation of Christians. I mean, that's a massive, massive Absolutely. undertaking. And that's a huge privilege and a, and, 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 and a huge necessary thing for the church. So when I feel like people are like, well, why can't women do this and that? It's just like, well, are, are you devaluing all the things that Paul says we need women to do? Mm-hmm. If, if they're not going to do this, if they're not going to answer the call, we're all going to suffer for this. And uh, how much of it is our obsession with the person up front, Absolutely. the public ministry, yeah. and not the quiet work that man or woman should be content in doing uh, as servants of the church? Yeah. And, you know, have we celebritized the pulpit? And this is a teaching, of course, for people like you and I who are often the most, we have the pulpit, right? So right. God forbid that we answer that question as, yes, we've devalued it. You know, you made a good point too, um, Brian. There's a wider Christian culture and reality here too that needs to needs to be addressed. And that is that men and women are not defined only by how they operate in reference to the authority and the teaching of, of the church, that there's a lot of other relationships and even beyond husband and wife. And so one of the questions I think that comes up is, well, what can a woman do in a church like this? It might come out of either maybe just a, like a slight neglect or not thinking through all the different roles that all of us have at one time, right? Right. We, we th- if you think about the metaphors that Paul uses for the church, again, it's not a corporate ladder. You know, it's not, you know, mm-hmm. CEO and then VP and then a bunch of, you know, underlings. It's a body, right? It's a body yeah. where the hand and the foot and the mouth and all the body parts rely on each other and they're distinct and they're unique. But if one hurts, the other part hurts. Totally. You know, it's an interconnectivity between it. And so- So there's one metaphor. There's right. also family. There's right? family, exactly. Which there's a family siblings. metaphor as well, which, you know, again, it's, it's the church talks about fathers. You know, uh, I think the apostle John speaks about being a spiritual father, right? Mm-hmm. And there's sons and then there's mothers, you know, and there are daughters, and there's brothers and sisters, and there's husbands and wives. And so- And even within brothers and sisters, there's older brothers. There's older and brothers, younger brothers, right. And older and sisters, yeah, and younger sisters. Exactly, so the, so the relationships are still gendered, but they're much more complex than just uh, pastor and laity or husband and wife. So you could be a woman in the church, you're not married. You're, you're not identityless, though. You're still a sister. You can still be a mother to younger women, and you can still be a daughter to older women, right? If you're a single man, you're still a brother. You're still a son. And you can, if you're older, you can be a father to younger men. And so there's mm-hmm. always, when we start to think more uh, openly about the different gender relations that we find in Scripture, I think it opens things up beyond just who gets to preach on Sunday morning and beyond just, you know, viewing gender strictly through the lens of marriage. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say, too, in the midst of all that, the Priscilla Aquila, um, for you know, circumstance where they instruct Apollos. Right. I see that as as a brother to sister thing as well, where there's influence, there's instruction, there's correction given, or there's invitations right. that are offered. We're not saying that men can't learn from women. Oh my goodness, because uh, there's there's a strict example of of a man learning from a yeah. woman, you know, and her husband. And absolutely should. And it's good and it's right. We we covered so much ground. I mean, we talked about how there's cultural forces. Feminism, uh, you know, the sort of gender neutrality, erasing the distinction between men and women, and just the fact that we don't sometimes like what the Bible says, and we have to contend with that and go, what does it actually say? Mm-hmm. And recognizing there's abuses and misunderstanding, but saying this isn't culturally bound because Paul cites this uh, and he undergirds it with the creation metaphors. He talks about Adam and Eve. He talks about that being the reason he's saying, I don't permit a woman to teach her authority over men. So whatever that verse means, Paul's grounding it in something that transcends culture, something that happened before the fall. And I think you were saying the specific application is, you know, on the Lord's Day worship, we don't believe that women should preach or teach, you know, or hold authority over men. Yeah. And uh, And I would say we're even careful. We're even careful about things that would be perceived as author- authoritative. So right. particular portions of the liturgy, right. benedictions, Lord's uh, table for sure. Right, yeah. right. 
And, uh, but that's only pertaining to the gathered church. It's not really saying anything outside of the gathered church. And there's way more flexibility in that regard. Yeah, I, I, of course, the principle remains, right? right? We don't throw the principle out. I would just say that we believe the others. There's more examples in scripture of, of for us to have have flexibility in application. Right, say that. right. And uh, that maybe we just need a higher view of ordination too. Like what? Uh, sure. What it means for someone to yeah. In the same way, defining the defining the gathered church helps us. Uh, defining membership, I think, helps us with a right, lot of issues right. down the road. I do. I I also I agree. Ordination, thinking thinking of that well helps us down the road. And there is a call of saying, you know, you want to be a church that calls men to lead in their homes, that calls men to lead their families, and that calls men to be active in the church. So there's even, you know a sense of like, maybe a missional sense of like, there's this population of men that seem to be very disengaged from the church. How do we get them to bring that same energy and vitality that they have in their secular jobs to serving the local church? And uh, because I think, again, one of Paul's deals in 1 Timothy 2 isn't just, I don't, you know, this is how what I desire the women to do. He says, these are what I desire the men to do, to lift holy hands, to be leaders in this community, to be people who take that mantle that God has put upon them and to run with it, right? And and that that's a good thing, that men cannot abdicate that and, and men have to be have to have, have to be people engaged in the church and not passive in the church. Yeah, absolutely. And when they're passive or when they're crazy or when they're self-seeking or when right. they want riches or when they're sensual and seeking sexual morality they should be rebuked soundly and out. And so we'll get to it. It's a different kind of limitation. But First Timothy chapter 3, with the requirements for an overseer, for an elder, right. there's all kinds of limitations there. Right. I mean, they're basically just saying, no, listen, men, ordered worship means you can't be all these crazy things either. So that is going to be a call to certain kind of manhood as well. And I would say that these are probably reciprocal in relationship. The more that men and women both in the church see quality, godly, non-fallen, non-angry, servant-hearted, but bold and courageous leadership from men, the more this will make sense and not seem so contentious. Right, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so ingrained in us. You have a bad experience with your parents, your mom or your dad, that's gonna affect the way that you view as you know different genders and authority positions there's there's all kinds of things behind that but you're right i think the best uh apologetic for this is to have godly male leadership shown in in a very positive light where you see men that you trust that you realize have your best interest in mind even just for men even for young men i mean i think about i, I think it's in john or it's, it's somewhere in the bible where they talk about how you know it, it calls for men to submit you know, it calls for men to be self-controlled. It calls for men to treat their elders with respect, to approach older women as if they're their mothers. So this is a call for submission to young men, that it's good for you. It's good for you to place yourself under the authority of these men. So it's not just a call for women. It's a call for, for, for especially young men to be like, hey, you need to calm down and place yourself under their authority because that's going to be the best thing for you. Yeah, and then ultimately we're all under Jesus' authority. Exactly. And all under right. God's authority when he gives teachings like this. Submission right? is a Christian thing. You know, limitations are a Christian thing. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's important to remember. Well, I, I, we, we couldn't cover every single thing about this. Hopefully we brought a little more clarity. Yeah, I think future combos, and it doesn't go there in First Timothy, but Ephesians does, for instance. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. Relationships, I mean, husbands, wives, singles, Right. You know, what does submission look like in all those roles, of course, but yeah, maybe we kind of loosely touched that because I I guess first Timothy isn't really about submission, but it's sort of submissiveness. They should learn. It's true. It's true. You hit it. You're you're okay there. But you're right. We can't hit everything, but maybe we're helpful at least with some of the questions that will arise from this passage. Right. Right. All right. Thank you guys for listening and uh, like this, share with your friends and we are out.